0: You're listening to the Code 4 Podcast. one
1: 25, status? I'm Code 4. Yeah, Code 4, 1104. Hey, everybody. This is Jeff Richards with the Code 4 Podcast. Sitting across from me today is Devin Edwards with the King County Sheriff's Office. And I wanted to thank you for coming today and sharing your story.
0: Yeah, anytime. I mean, I'm happy to be here.
1: (laughs) All right. Well, we'll get into it here. How long have you been a police officer?
0: Uh, It'll be 10 years in October. So just shy of 10 years started in uh, 2011.
1: What were you doing before?
0: Actually, uh, I've always wanted to be a police officer ever since I was a kid. Mm -hmm. I was literally that that kid in the playground that was like policing everybody and had to make sure everything was fair. And maybe it sounds a little cliche to say, but justice for everyone. I mean, that was just that was that was who I was Um, from, you know, being a small child in elementary school, role playing Power Rangers. But I always had to, you know, save everybody. So law enforcement was always kind of my dream uh, from a young age. Early on, I decided in high school that I'd go to school for artwork because I'm actually pretty talented in the art realm. And I decided if I went to school for art, I could play around with the art and have fun with it. But my actual, you know, day job career would be law enforcement. Because there's no money in art.
1: <laughs> well, it's yeah, it's very difficult, isn't it?
0: Yes, yes, it is. But I found out very quickly in, when I was in college for art school that uh, I didn't like being told what to draw mm. or how to draw it or make edits to it. Or I didn't like any of it. I just liked being able to create it on my own and do my own thing. So I realized really quickly that I would not make a good illustrator. Um, I probably would just be too stubborn and willful. So... Aside from it being hard to make money on it, I probably wouldn't make any money on it.
1: And do you have some of your own works displayed, like in your house?
0: Uh, oh, yeah. I have plenty. Uh, I have my own studio in my house. So, um, and I create as often as I can. I don't have anything in a gallery yet. Um, it's just I've been dragging my feet trying to figure out how to get work into a gallery. That is my goal. I would love to be in a gallery, but it hasn't happened yet. Um, actually, some of my uh, my graphic design work, is uh, I designed the patrol cars for my last agency, so if you see them around town, that's my work.
1: And who was that?
0: The Cannon Beach Police Department.
1: Cannon Beach. Yeah. All right. Yeah. Wow. So you started there. Yep. Okay.
0: Yep. They hired me in October. Was it October thirteenth, and it was literally Friday the thirteenth when they hired <laughs> me too. So it was one of those like <laughs> should have been a sign in two thousand eleven.
1: So that's uh, they have the city, but then mm-hmm. probably a, a big rural area. Mixed.
0: Yes, yes, and no. So the city itself isn't too terribly rural. Uh, everywhere around it, yes, it's very rural. So it's it's more of a tourist kind of city. Mm-hmm. Um, it's gorgeous, beautiful, very, very, very small. It wasn't actually my intention to end up there. It just kind of it just kind of happened.
1: Okay. So. And then when did you come up to King County Sheriff's?
0: July twentieth of two thousand and fifteen. So. All right. Just over. Actually, it was six years this July, now that I think about it. I got a degree in art, not math, so.
1: (laughs) That's okay. So, 10 years, has your perception of what's police work all about, has that changed from the beginning to now? Uh,
0: Yes and no. I'm definitely more salty and and jaded now than I was when I, you know, bright-eyed, bushy-tailed when I started. Um. I have a harder time remembering why I started with all of the political stuff that's going on. But deep down, the the recurring theme is still the same, that I wanted to serve my community and help people. So, yeah, that, that that's still the same. All the emotions that go around it are a little more complicated. I don't feel as excited as I did when I first started. It's just a little hard to be excited these days. Yeah. But I, if you were to ask me tomorrow, would you still do this job? I mean, I may complain and say, "Nah, I'd rather do anything else." I'd still do it.
1: So you will really, <laughs> still do it. You haven't been feeling like a a draw to just get out after what's been going on.
0: Yes, and I say it. Yeah, I say it. I complain about it, and I'd be like, "Oh, if, I, if something else paid me as good as this does, I'd leave tomorrow." But I wouldn't. I mean, I just I'm in patrol. I'm still in patrol, and it's just so damn fun. I just every day it's the greatest show on earth. So I I don't know. Ask me on a different day. Maybe I'll change my mind.
1: Well, yes, we can. (laughs) We all go up and down, don't we? Yeah. Yeah. Well, it has been a tough couple years. Yes. And the job is not getting easier. No. For anybody in public service, but mostly, I think, for police officers. It's been very difficult.
0: Yes. Yeah. No, I think so. I think it's... The public perception of law enforcement is that, you know, we're high speed, guns out, kicking doors, all that fun stuff. But in reality, if you talk to most of the, the men and women that are in this profession, they wanted to make an impact in their communities. They wanted to help people. So deep down, the fuzzy, you know, warm feelings that nobody really wants to say out loud is they want to help people. And... Right now, especially in this state, uh, we're not helping people, and it's and we want to. It's it's the hardest thing I've ever had to do. Where I arrive on calls and I can't do anything, and they have to tell me so. You'll come back when somebody's murdered, and I'd be like,
1: unfortunately, yes. And that's been a change recently, right? It's, yes, yes. Yeah.
0: That's that's been in the last six months. It's gotten it's gotten bad, and then the new laws that passed actually just today they went into effect. The twenty-fifth. Um hmm. it's 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 even worse. So we're coping with it. I'm coping with it, but it's really hard basically telling people that I'm sorry, we can't help you with that. You're on your own.
1: You know, it's uh it's one of these things where I think for any first responder, you have to deal and check your own emotions mm-hmm. every day. Oh yeah. Every hour, I think, as we go through a day, we have our ups and downs and this and that. And then you go out and are trying to do the right thing. These limitations are put on us Mm -hmm. and you're dealing with people that are, you know, having a tough go. Yeah. And their emotional, oh, I guess, what do we call it? Their their equilibrium is off. Yeah. You know? And so it's, uh, it really puts people in a tough position and then you know there are people that are making decisions that really don't understand any of this and they mm-hmm. think that oh we can just send out mental health professionals and that that'll they'll take care of it yeah when they don't know at all what goes on on these calls and it would be very unsafe for just a person like that to be on a call
0: yeah it's it's also putting you guys the fire service in a lot of danger as well cuz we're not allowed to respond or if we do respond we can't do anything with a lot of these calls and they're having fire go out instead. And fire goes, well, we'll we're not going to go unless, you right. know, police make it safe. And we're like, well, I guess you're on your own. And it's just, it's an orboros of of just what do you do?
1: Yeah. Well, so all that's going on. Mm-hmm. And the yeah. first, I think this is really common that folks that when you start off, you have these, like you called it being uh, wide-eyed and bushy-tailed and yeah, stuff. Yeah. And I remember you know, my first days in the fire service as well. And then you, you have a lot to do in the beginning, mm-hmm. a lot of training, mm-hmm. a lot of things that you're trying to learn the job. I mean, you can be highly educated and have all kinds of degrees, but you don't know anything no. until you've been out on the street and you start learning as you go. Yeah. And ex- through experience, learning from others, seeing things, mm-hmm. adapting, and then you, you go, you get all that training done, and maybe you're like considered a first class or, you know, your apprenticeship is done or whatever. Mm-hmm. And then you have a couple of years where it's like, all right, I just go to work and I do my thing. Mm-hmm. And then after that period ends, it seems like there's this time where you go, now what? And you start seeing all the things that you're dealing with and all the things you're going to be dealing with. Mm-hmm. And I think people sometimes wonder what. And so it kind of puts you. It's like the seven-year itch in a marriage. They, it's yeah. it seems to be around the same amount of time. It's just kind of weird how that works out.
0: Yeah, I actually I teach this to my recruits when I teach them or when I train them that there's going to be a point after you're on your own doing your own thing that you're going to just it's going to click. This job is just going to make sense. It's it's weird, and it happens different times for different people. Um, for me, it took about two years before just suddenly it just, you know, clicked in my head where I'm like, Oh, wow, this doesn't seem as hard as I remember it being. So it's this weird, just suddenly the flow starts to make sense. And then from that period to about, yeah, five to seven years, it, I've noticed it's like a, an overconfidence. Like you feel pretty invincible, you know, everything, you don't need to be trained to anything. I mean, you're so high speed, you You're good to go. You're young. um, And then once you hit past that, then it becomes kind of like this. Well, okay, I've been doing this a while. Now what? And now that's kind of the window where I'm in right now. We're 10 years in. um, I still love the job, but now I'm considered one of the more senior people on my shift. And it's just kind of weird to see that full circle where I'm like, oh, yeah, now what?
1: (laughs) Yeah, well, it is. And. I'm glad to hear that you're still enjoying your work. Yes, you know that is huge.
0: Yeah, I. If it weren't for everything and learning the tools that I did a couple of years ago, um, I probably wouldn't be. But I mean, I as of right now, as the person that I am now, I have a great outlook on on my job and. Especially when it comes to training, while I can't really train like on views for, you know, citizen contacts or Terry stops because that's the new laws are really limiting on that. Instead, I'm teaching my students um, career survival and what to focus on at least with their own home life and their own mental health in order to survive this career because they're coming into law enforcement in a real, really shitty time. So I want them to. Be able to come into it healthy, um, knowing that there will be something at the... There's a light at the end of the tunnel. There, They will be able to see law enforcement actually do their jobs again. I mean, I have hope that that's, it's going to swing back that way. It has to. Yeah, it it has to, because it's just... It's a little out of control right now.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Uh, but that's what I'm teaching them now. I, I went from teaching them how to be a cop to how to survive being a cop.
1: That's interesting. So... You alluded to something you said... Uh, A couple years ago. Mm -hmm. Let's let's talk about that. What uh, what do you mean by that?
0: Uh, Well, there's a lot of backstory that leads up to it. But basically, in uh, December of was actually yeah, December of 2019, I ended up checking into a first responder recovery center. So I was at complete rock bottom. And there was there's a there's a lot of backstory to it that we could kind of talk about. Leading up to it, but
1: do you want to get into it?
0: I, we can.
1: All right. Sure. Yeah. Like, what was going on? What uh? What
0: happened? Uh, so I guess I, I guess I'd have to really go back to childhood. Honestly, I have to go way back.
1: Well, that is a cliche, but yeah. it is so true.
0: It is. It really is. <laughs> I didn't realize how how yeah. important it was. I thought when people would ask me, like, you know, oh, how was your childhood? And, you know, was there any trauma or anything involved? And I'm like, no, no, I was, you know, middle class family, you know, two parents, I had a good, I had a good childhood. But then I started unpacking a little bit more and discovered, okay, maybe not. So uh, I was um, oldest of three siblings growing up. And uh, I was always called the old soul of the family, always trying to parent you know my siblings or be the responsible one it was before 10 before i was 10 years old so probably about yeah seven or eight my parents started having uh, a lot of arguments fights nothing physical that that at least i was aware over aware of but i remember clearly to this day what really changed me was um so they would have these big screaming matches and i would take my siblings upstairs and i'd turn on the radio so they wouldn't hear it I knew what was going on, but I didn't want them to know. So I was constantly protecting them from my parents. And uh, I remember one day, my I think my siblings were with my mother. Either way, they weren't around, but it was just me and my dad. And I was really close to my dad. And he asked me in one of his uh, drunken stupors that uh, it, when him and my mother divorced who I wanted to live with. Mm. And I remember in that moment, just this huge panic and guilt and shame all, in, all rolled into one. And I told him him, of course, because he's standing in front of me looking, crying and drunk and upset. And in that moment, I just I, I I didn't realize it, but I had internalized this guilt that I didn't choose my mother. And I think I spent the rest of my life at that point uh, trying to make it up and prove to her that I was worth love, that I was worth her attention. Because I remember after that, I went onto the roof of my house and just sobbed for ever. But that mm. was that was I was really young age when that happened. Sure. So, but my father, he was a heavy alcoholic. Um, he wasn't abusive. He wasn't harmful. He didn't yell at any of us. But he was. I remember whenever he'd be drinking, I'd see the Canadian mist, you know, whiskey and his Diet Coke, and I would know that there's no talking to dad. He's already three sheets of the wind, and there's just no more talking to him anymore. I used to call them growing up stupid conversations, because my father was a very intelligent man. He had uh, some pretty good philosophical discussions until he started drinking. And then it was just, as I call it, stupid conversations. And I just, I hated interacting with him whenever he was in that state, because I just felt like it was... Me talking to someone younger than myself instead of my parent. So fast forward past that. I remember my father kept telling me I always had to make my mother happy. Um, No matter what I did is make sure your mother's happy. Make sure you take care of your mom. Make sure you take care of your mom. So that coupled with my own guilt growing up, that I had to somehow prove myself to my mother, I ended up being that typical adult child that Had to get good grades, had to do everything perfect, had to never break the rules, Um, always home, you know, on time, if not early, always overachieving, cleaning the house, making sure my siblings were in line. I mean, I was I was going above and beyond as that, you know, oldest sibling. And then when I was 15, uh, the fighting with my parents had kind of gotten to the, the peak. And my father was told to leave at one point but he did come back because of his drinking and then he tore his meniscus. I don't remember how he did it, but he, he was on pain meds drinking. And one day he just decided that that was it. That was enough. So I remember being downstairs in my living room and he was drunk. So I was kind of ignoring him because again, I was at that point, I was 15, Mm -hmm. you know, dad wasn't cool. And, uh, I really didn't want to have a stupid conversation because I was so much more intelligent than that, (laughs) you know. And uh, he got up and he started going upstairs and he stopped and looked at me and said, goodbye, I love you. And I remember kind of looking at him going like, what, what the hell does that mean? Uh, I just thought, okay, he's drunk. And I looked at him kind of odd and said, um, good night because he told me he was going to take a nap. And then he went upstairs, closed the door, and that was the last I ever saw him. Oh, boy. Yeah. So he committed suicide by overdosing on his pain meds. So fast forward to a couple hours later, mother gets home from work. She was the breadwinner at the time. He stayed home from work. She went upstairs to try and change. Obviously, the door was locked. So she thought it was just another argument between the two of them and came back downstairs, started to make us dinner because, of course, we're all teenagers and (laughs) we don't know any better, you know. Mm. We we can't cook for ourselves, even though we totally could. So another hour goes by, and then she goes back upstairs to finally change out of her work clothes, and she's had enough with Dad because the door was still locked. So she brings up a screwdriver and takes the door apart, and that's when she finds him. So I remember from that point on, hearing her screaming and crying, she comes out and, and orders me to take my siblings to my neighbor's house. And I remember, once again, I fell into that adult child well oldest child kind of role i gathered up my siblings forced them to go with me and we went to the neighbor's house and i just kind of huddled them in a room watched the uh, pierce county fire guys and the sheriff's office arrive at my house and just kind of waited so yeah
1: that is the story
0: that was yeah it I knew it was a traumatic experience for me, because again, despite his alcoholism, I, I did love my father. The last few years of his life was not, not an easy one. There was actually one incident within the last two years of his life where he was completely completely in his cups. He was very way past the legal limit and he was gonna take my brother to his Taekwondo class. And I actually stood between my brother and my dad and said, you're not taking him. You're too drunk. And my dad basically ordered my brother to go with him. And, you know, my brother's got a choice. Listen to his older sister or his father. So he went with my dad and they were completely drunk. And I called law enforcement and I called my mom. They didn't catch him, but it was a very quick drive there and back. But I... I basically ratted him out and he stopped trusting me at that point and then blamed me for more arguments between him and my mom, because I told my mother and that didn't end so well for me, but I had a lot of conflicts with, am I the second parent? Do I take care of them? But I love my father. You know, he was my role model. I wanted to be him growing up. So it was, it was quite a last couple of years leading up to his death and interesting enough, it was actually the Pierce County sheriffs and the, the fire department that came over to my neighbor's house, because my mother was still at the house the whole time, who came over and then they sat me down as the oldest sibling. And it was the way they sat me down and broke the news to me uh, and told me that my father was dead. Even though I was the typical, I mean, I was 15. I was really upset. And you know, you're, you're you're lying to me. It can't be true. It can't be right. and upset and crying but it was actually their demeanor and it was the way they talked to me and the the, just i don't know there was something about the way they carried themselves that just it just clicked for me where that was it i wanted to be in law enforcement i I wanted to do that and i don't know who they were to this day i don't even know if they're still a part of the sheriff's office but it was their presence that actually really clicked with me that yeah this is this is something i want to do
1: well that is interesting
0: yeah you wouldn't think you wouldn't think that would be the inspirational point but apparently it was for me.
1: Well, what an impact on your life mm-hmm. and for the entire family. Yes. And so you already had a lot going on with uh, being a child of a alcoholic. Yes. And as you progressed throughout life, how did you compartmentalize this? How did you deal with that? Did you feel it affecting you like in high school, you know?
0: It, it changed me 100%. I remember, uh, like in my freshman classes, especially my English history block classes that I had, um, when I first started, because it was in the middle of the year, it happened in May, when well, maybe got the middle of the year, towards the end of the year of my freshman year. And I remember I was that kid that when I would go to school, because school was away from home, I could be whoever I wanted to in school. I, I would literally sit down to whoever I was next to in class and I'd look at both of the, you know kids next to me. and I go, I need your name and your number because we're going to be study buddies. And they're looking I'm like, who the hell is this girl? Like, it's just weird. Yeah. Uh, but that's who I was. I was, I was outgoing. I was, I, I mean, I wasn't a teacher's pet, but I was definitely smart. And I like to show it. After he passed, complete inversion. I didn't talk to anybody. I was very quiet. I, the way I compartmentalized was I just numbed it. I remember actually, whenever I was riding the bus home from school, that whenever I would have thoughts that I didn't like, I actually would pinch that space between my, my thumb and my pointer finger, and I would pinch it until it hurts. So then I would stop. So every time I had a thought, I would pinch myself. And then eventually I just stopped thinking about it because I didn't want to pinch myself. So it was a weird pain response that I just avoided it entirely. But uh, it, yeah, it changed me from a very outgoing, um, excited to be in high school and, you know, have friends and do all these fun things to a very introverted, almost angry teenager.
1: Well, anger is extremely powerful. And if we turn anger inwards, it can lead to depression.
0: Mm-hmm. And that was the other thing. Um Alcoholism and mental health, huge part in my uh, family with my father. Actually, um, my great grandfather on my dad's side was a heavy alcohol. He was an abusive alcoholic, and my grandfather was completely abstinent. Um, and then my dad was an alcoholic, but depression was huge in um, both both of uh, my dad's mother and and father. My mother or my grandmother actually, she um, was addicted to pain pills. Didn't really know it until she was much later in life, but there was a lot of depression in the family, and I definitely had it. I was definitely battling pretty severe depression all throughout adolescence into college, all the way up to you know the rock bottom of 2019. <laughs> so,
1: a lot of times, it seems that uh, I mean, you talk about childhood. We had another police officer on the podcast who talked about trauma eggs. Yeah. and he said so you have these in your basket mm-hmm. and then you start a profession that puts more in there.
0: Yeah, I definitely had a full basket before I started the profession and I I had seen a couple counselors throughout uh college, high school here and there but I just didn't trust them. There was something that they would do or say that just made me completely shut down and I just no, I'm good. I'm fine and I pretend to be happy and normal and somehow they would not see through that and they just be like yeah, she's good. So I don't know if I just became very good at lying or faking it. Uh, I had a lot of practice growing up, but I definitely just kept adding. I definitely kept adding eggs to the basket even before I became a police officer.
1: So you start into the police department down at Cannon Beach first. Mm-hmm. And then what made you leave there?
0: It was it was a really small department. I actually never intended to work in Oregon, Um I had graduated college early, and within 10 days, I had moved to Cannon Beach because I had this little five-year plan that I would work in galleries, do some artwork, see how I like that, um, use my degree. And then if I didn't like it, then I would go into law enforcement. I got bored after two years, (laughs) maybe even less than that. Um, So I decided to ask around a local, the local police station, which was Cannon Beach, How the process worked because I had no first responders that were in law enforcement in my family, and so I didn't really know what the process was like. But I figured Oregon, Washington, it's probably pretty similar. So I had sat down with the actually the chief of police at the time because I had met him when he was doing alarm permit renewal for businesses because I was working in a gallery at the time. He said, "Hey, um, we're hiring. You should apply." And I'm like, "Eh, "Why not? What's what's the worst that could happen?" And and lo and behold, I was the chosen candidate. So uh, it wasn't ever my long term plan. It just happened to work out that way. I had a lot of fun when I was there. But I I wanted more. I wanted I wanted to be busier. I wanted more area to cover. I wanted to be closer home, which was uh, Washington State. And I wanted more opportunities than than what was presented to me with a very, very small agency, plus patrolling, you know, something that's basically two square miles (laughs) Mm -hmm. forever just it just didn't seem like it was my cup of tea
1: so you made the change from the small department and come up to the bigger one Mm -hmm. things were going pretty good you had that uh, those first years of learning and excitement and change and then things kind of you just settled in and
0: Kind of. I actually yeah. had a little bit of a roadblock when I when I first started. So I was hired in July and then did all my training. Um, and then I got TDA'd, you know, tra- temporary transfer to our metro division, which was downtown. And when I was working there, I was trying to push a program. It, it's a sexual assault program that I had been trying to work on in Cannon Beach. So I was trying to introduce it up in King County because I'm thinking, oh, big agency, you know. I'm going to get them on board and it's going to be great. Um, you know, I saw that small town, small town cop mind <laughs> when I, when I started there, but in February, a neighboring agency, technically it's not, it's not our agency. It's the seaside police department, but we work with them. They work with us. If I needed a, a unit to back me, it's going to be them because there's only one of us that works in Kenna Beach at the time. Um, and we, we, we're very close. So I kind of call them like our partners. Uh, one of them, who I didn't realize how impactful it would have been to me until much, 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 you know, much later. Uh, he was killed in the line of duty. And I remember I found out when I was, you know, hanging out with a couple of the deputies and a detective trying to push this program. And I just happened to open my phone. And I saw all my friends changing their profile pictures to the thin blue line for Seaside. And people that were saying, you know, 604, you know, EOW, and it just, you know, gut punch. And I started to call my friends and try to get a hold of anybody that would answer. Ended up calling they he was actually my boyfriend at the time. And I called him, and he was on his way to the hospital. And he said that, yeah, he's you know, Jason passed. And I was devastated. And I couldn't quite figure out why he wasn't. My best friend. I didn't know his family. Uh, We didn't like hang out every single day. But what I realized years later was he was basically my hero when I started this, this career. Losing my father at a young age, I didn't have any, you know, hero role models that I just kind of amplified in my life or utilized, I guess, or looked up to. And when I started law enforcement, I really didn't have anybody to look up to. I was completely on my own. I didn't know who who to look up to, who to ask questions. It was just me doing it myself, which I had been doing my entire life. And he um, he was extremely fit, extremely intelligent, very empathetic, really good at his job, and everybody loved him. And I looked up to him as, I want to be like that. That's the officer I want to be. That's who I want to be. And he was just like we all say, you know, one of the good guys, like how, how come it always happens to the good guys? Granted, there are no, in my opinion, bad guys, but it always feels like, you know, the cop's cop that ends up going. And I think that's what just ripped it out of my heart for me was there was another role model, another hero, and they were gone. And I think deep down, that was a sense of abandonment for me, where once again, I was abandoned by these heroes, these role models, and it was just me on my own again. So that was a really rough, really rough period of time. I ended up going back to Oregon, doing, you know, the casket watch and transport to the Emmy's office, and then the funeral itself. And then coming back to work, I came back to work way too soon. Uh, I was not ready. I remember I was still working downtown. And uh, Seattle had a broadcast at a ten thirty three. You know, help the officer. They were in a fight um, somewhere downtown, and it just—I just shut down. I mean, I—I I, I got really, really amped up. I was trying to find them. I couldn't figure out where they were. I was lost in downtown Seattle. I was running code, and I couldn't find them. And I all I could think of is, I'm not going to be there. I'm not going to be there. I'm not going to be there again. And it's going to be my fault. And they ended up canceling us because they had Seattle had an army by that time. They had plenty of people. And I remember just being downtown and just, I just broke down. I just started crying in the middle of downtown and went back to my sergeant and I walked into his office and he took one look at me and said, you're not ready to come back. And I said, no. So he sent me home. And then, uh, what was it? Shortly after I came back after that, I was uh, doubling up with another unit, um, another deputy. And I, as a female in this profession, I hate to say it, but there are definitely people who don't want us in this profession. And I and I experienced that going into it, uh, having my career up until that point. Um, I had definitely experienced my male counterparts believing that I had no place to be. I had no reason to be there. Um, I wouldn't cut it. I wasn't good enough or just I wasn't supposed to be there. And so it's really hard to even talk to your coworkers about what's going on because um, you don't want to be seen as what they fear you as, an emotional female, which is what I my my thoughts were. So I had a partner at the time, it was a female, and I kind of started to open up to her thinking, okay, maybe she gets it, Maybe maybe I can talk to her about this. And I remember I started talking about how I felt about Jason's death. The first thing she said to me was, "Well, maybe this job doesn't cut out for you. Maybe you need to do something else." And it was just like, "Whoa!" And suddenly, I just I shut down again. I hit all my emotions. Um, I I didn't talk to anybody about Jason after that. It was nope. I don't want to be. I don't want to be an emotional female. I don't want to be perceived as I I can't hack it. I can't handle it, or that I have any issues. So I, once again, started to avoid, um, I didn't pinch myself this time, (laughs) but I definitely started to avoid everything. And I just wouldn't talk about it. I was, uh, emotionless. And that allowed me to continue through the next couple of years in training and settling in, uh, getting a routine with the sheriff's office. And I seemed to be doing pretty well. Deep down, I was having a lot of issues, not just with the avoidance of childhood, Jason's death. Because at the time, I still didn't quite know why I was so upset about it. Because it was one of those again. I, I wasn't, I wasn't his best friend or anything, but yet I was devastated. So what was, what was the deal? And then I started having issues with my family as well. Um, I know we're kind of ahead of this now, but growing up with my mother she wasn't very um, accepting of who I actually am in terms of sexuality so I i mean I'll say it I'm, I, I'm bisexual and I remember at the time my mother had made some comments about how one my life would be very difficult if I was anything other than you know normal I suppose and then she also made comments about well, if you're bisexual, people who are bi, they they just want to have sex with everybody. They're, they're, they're just a bunch of sluts. And it was just... Ugh. So, again, trying to please my mother, because I always remember my father told me, make your mother happy, uh, don't upset your mother. And being that older sibling, I was afraid of who I was, so I didn't want to be who I was. Never confronted it, never dealt with it. Always wanted to make her happy, and that just started to accumulate into a lot of a lot of trauma eggs going in the basket, but I, the way I was coping to deal with my family was whenever I would see them, I would drink. And it was never to the point of alcoholism, but that was just that, that was that was the only way I could cope with them is I had to drink in order just to be around them because I could not i just I couldn't stand being around my family. I couldn't stand being who they wanted me to be. they' that traditional as a female, you're not worthy unless you have children. You're not worthy unless you're married and have kids. If you don't bring that to the table, then what point, what good are you? And, uh, I just, I couldn't, I couldn't make them happy. I couldn't, I couldn't give them that because that wasn't who I was. So that started to build up and I, I looked like I was doing pretty good at work on the outside. I had a good, great reputation. I had a lot of really great friends I was making some great arrests. I had become a trainer with my department really early on and life seemed pretty good. But the depression was coming back with a vengeance and it was starting to eat me alive. And I just kept internalizing it and putting on this brave face. As the years went on, it just kept eating at me and eating at me and eating at me. It was like it's it's hard it's hard to describe. It's it's like literally being in a hole that you're digging yourself, but for some reason you can't stop the digging. But when you're digging, you're you're also throwing the dirt that you're digging up on yourself, so you're kind of burying yourself too. And you just you you compulsively keep doing it. You can't stop. You know you shouldn't be doing it. You know you're making the hole deeper. You know you can't get out of it now. You can't you can barely see the top, but you're still doing it. And that's how it felt. And it was just, I couldn't talk to anybody about it. I I didn't dare talk to anybody about it. Because on top of that, it was, one, I didn't want to be seen as an emotional female that couldn't hack it in this career. Because now that I'm in a bigger agency, there's even more people who don't think women should be in this profession. Because I went from, if I backtrack a little bit, the last agency I was with, I was like one of five females in the entire county. So there was not very many of us. There's more women in the sheriff's office than I'm at now. But still, we're, we're kind of few and far between. <laughs> but I didn't want to be seen as just this emotional, can't hack it, not strong enough, unstable woman, crazy. Uh, so I didn't want to talk about it. And on top of that, I didn't want my partners to think that I was not able to handle it. I didn't want them to not want. I didn't want them to see me as the partner that they didn't want to show up on scene. Like you know, oh she she shows up, we might as well just you know throw in the towel. I wanted to be that partner that if I showed up, they're like, yeah, Edwards is here. We're gonna we're gonna kick some ass. And I worked very hard for that. So, I just I just stuffed it down. I avoided it. Added more <laughs> added more shit to the basket. Yeah, more dirt. Yep. More <laughs> dirt. More dirt. Kept digging. Um. And it all started to kind of come to a head in about twenty eighteen and I started thinking about suicide and it was just thoughts at first, and then of course, like all I kept thinking about was I just I just wanted it I just wanted to sleep that's just what that was a the common theme for me is i I just wanted to sleep I just wanted to stop and I just wanted to sleep I was just tired I was tired all the time and there were a couple times in 2018 where I thought that, you know, it'd just be better. My dad did it. It'd just be better if, if I wasn't here. I could actually finally get some sleep. And when people talk about suicide, I think it's like, you know, ending the pain or, you know, you're in a hole and you can get out of it. But it's, it's much more complicated than that. Uh, for some people, it's they just want the pain to stop. And for me, it was, it was legitimately sleep. Like I I was sleeping 10 hours a day if I wanted to, and I I could take naps if I wanted to, but I was still mentally tired. And I just, I just wanted to, I just wanted to sleep that would stop it all.
1: That is something about depression, because I have my own experience with it, that it's, I think to try to explain it to somebody, Mm -hmm. how exhausting it is to fight it. And for anybody that's fighting it you you definitely know what we're talking about, yeah, it is it just wears you down, and that feeling about just wanting to sleep mm-hmm. that is very familiar
0: yeah and yeah. and i was I was starting to lose to lose that fight,
1: yeah,
0: all of that time of avoidance, all that time of you know feeling like, okay, I can get past this if I put on this brave face, I put on the uniform, I'm safe. Um, it was, it was catching up to me and I was just tired all the time, tired and angry all the time. And at work it was starting, it was starting to come through in tiny ways, but it was starting to come through. I started getting these little micro complaints and I think it was probably mostly in 2018 and they were all like speeding complaints from citizens, like tailgating in traffic. Which uh, to this day I'm still not entirely sure how you tailgate in traffic, but you know that's how the complaint <laughs> was written. Another little complaints uh, just speeding in general, or driving too fast. Or uh, one was I um, was I left my district early and was using my computer while driving. That was that was a good one. <laughs> but they all started coming in around the same time, and we have this system. Which most of us may be familiar with called blue team, which is supposed to be for commendations and discipline. We all know it's not used for commendations at all. It's only used for discipline. And there's supposed to be a notification that if you get any complaint, doesn't matter what it is, it could be use of force all the way down to just supervisor, you know, action logs or when they talk to you. A supervisor talks to you about, hey, don't do that no more. Um, if you get a certain amount of complaints within a certain amount of time. It's supposed to trigger this like, hey, there might be something going on with this employee. This is a lot of complaints in a short period of time. And I was definitely getting them. And on top of that, I had at the time, there was a certain member of brass that I don't know if there was a vendetta or or if it was retaliate. I don't, I, to this day, I'm not entirely sure what it was, but every discipline that would come through, he would overturn. Um, in terms of wanting the discipline to be worse and these small little things like speeding my, you know, majors or my sergeants at the time that would review the discipline and go, yeah, well, we can't really, you know, make this a founded complaint, uh, because of X, Y, and Z. We recommend it just be either unfounded or a supervisor just talk to, talk to her. And he, his response, cause he has to sign off on it was this dissertation of I'm lying. Uh, I have no integrity. And the citizen is more trustworthy than me. And at this point, I had held my, I had always held myself to such a high standard because I had to be better. I had to be the best of the best because I had to overcome all the other obstacles of how tough this job is and being a female in this job. So I worked really hard to make sure that one, I never had complaints. And if I did, they were the kind that there was just no avoiding them. But when I got this and they said that I had no integrity and I was lying, that's a it was a death sentence for me. And I remember I had sergeants that uh and people that were senior in the department, they they would this they that knew about this. They would ask me, Who did you piss off and why? And I i just stare at them and go, I don't know. I have no idea. If you figure it out, please tell me. And the complaints kept coming in, and the dissertations from, you know, the certain member in the upper echelon would overturn them or make them even worse and continue to say that I had no integrity and that I was a liar. Basically, that I was a piece of shit deputy. (laughs) And even though my personal life and the depression was really creeping up on me, I had still thought that work was my, my prized possession. That was the one good thing I had left, that I was good at. And now it was nothing. And that's how it felt to me. Is that now I couldn't even now I couldn't even do anything without getting a complaint, and now being told that I was a liar if I tried to leave my agency to get away from this person, this would be in my file saying that I'm a liar, which for a cop my career's over. I mean, who who would believe the line patrol deputy over someone that's in top administration saying that I'm a liar, if they read that? I could try and explain it away as much as I could, it it would just look like I'm making an excuse, so at that point, I started really falling apart. Like it was, work was nothing now. I basically was told that I couldn't do anything right. Or at least that's what I was telling myself in my head. And I started attempting suicide at work. Because the one thing I wanted was, I I wasn't going to die at home. I wanted to die in uniform. Because again, that's the last thing I had that I I worked my ass off to get, I was really proud of it. And I felt I was a damn good cop. So I wanted to die as a cop. So I would go to work um, and go into the bathroom and I'd take my duty gun out and I'd just be crying, ready, ready to pull the trigger. And a call would come out. So I'd put, put the gun away, dry my eyes best I could handle business and then continue on. So that behavior persisted all the way through 2018 um and i started to try and throw lifelines out i think it was my body's my mind's last way of saying help help mm-hmm. <laughs> i need some help whereas in reality i just wanted to sleep um i had reached out to my department's peer support team at least somebody i knew that was on the team and i was trying to do the you know the typical first responder thing of I know somebody that might need some help, you (laughs) know, I have this friend. Yeah. (laughs) Asking for a friend. And I was like, so what resources do we have? If you know, this friend of mine (laughs) is going through some stuff. And the first response they had was, Oh gee, I hope you're not feeling that way. Uh, I don't know. And I remember just kind of sitting there staring at him like, wow, you're my peer support.
1: Yeah, that's oh, okay. unfortunate.
0: Yeah, and it, and so that added to my Okay, I'm I I'm, once again I'm in this on my own. I got to fight through this on my own. You know, nobody cares. Um, just going to fight through this on my own. So never again did I reach out to my peer support. Right. Completely just shut him off. I was like, "You know what? Just I think the one thing he suggested was, yeah, you they could probably contact EAP." And I'm like, "Right. A bunch of people that have no idea how to do this job." Or there are civilians that aren't even remote. No. Mm-hmm. And at the time, I did not want my department to know that I was struggling. Again, I needed to be better, and I didn't want my department to fire me, thinking that I was incompetent or mentally deranged or whatever. Mm-hmm. You yeah. know, I was catastrophizing in my head. I didn't want them to know. So EAP means they'd have to know. So I was like, nope, aboard uh, that mission. So continued on struggling, the suicide attempts of the bathroom continued on. And I, I mean, I I look at it now and go, that was a sign. Because uh, every time I'd get a call, whenever I'd go into the bathroom with the intent to kill myself, I'd always get a call. And uh, I ended up actually calling a hotline. And I actually first called Safe Call Now. And it was in the middle, this was the only time I felt like I was going to actually kill myself at home. And I called from home. And I was put on hold for about five minutes. And when I did get connected with somebody, it was somebody clearly from a different state who had no idea where I lived, didn't seem to understand what I was saying. And then when I told them I was in uh, Puyallup at the time, they won. They couldn't repeat what I was saying because they were definitely not from this area. So mm-hmm. they had no idea what Puyallup <laughs> is what mm-hmm. they would say. Said so, no, it's Puyallup. Um And they said, okay, well, we'll see if we can find a a counselor for you. And we'll get back to you in a couple days. And then they hung up on me. And I remember kind of sitting there going, I have a gun in my lap right now. You want to connect me with a counselor in a couple? Okay. What if I'm dead in a couple days? Hmm. Hmm. And so after that, it was just, I don't know how I didn't, but for some reason, the depression and fatigue kicked in and I was just tired. I went to bed. I, was just, I, well, I tried to go to bed. I slept, but I didn't feel rested. And that persisted. So I'm deteriorating. I'm not sleeping anymore. I'm exhausted. I had tried the peer support. I had re- called out to Safe Call Now. And all these experiences told me, you're pretty much not worth the information or time. And they never followed up
1: either, by the way. Oh, my gosh.
0: So it was just downhill, complete downhill. And at the, around this time, I kept getting more IIU findings from this certain person from Upper Echelon, and one, the last one was seven pages, which was yeah, fantastic. I'm not even sure how he managed to put You're a Liar in seven pages, but it was in there. Creative writing. It was 100%. Cre- oh, it had to have been creative <laughs> yeah. writing, because when you look at it now, you're like, where, did, where the hell did you even get that? That's not even a part of the investigation. I mean, yeah. like, what the hell? But at the time, I'm reading it going... Uh, i'm screwed Mm -hmm. um i had a sergeant at the time and uh he knew i don't know how he knew because not even my partner that i had been working with for years knew but he knew he started watching me very closely and he would ask he'd come in and he'd ask me like you know is everything okay like yeah everything's fine and he'd be like "Mm mm-hmm but he'd give me space and i remember one time because he kept, he he literally, from that point on, he checked on me every single day. It was almost, well, it was, to me, annoying. Because he'd message me on our CAD system be like, so where are you at? And I'm like, mm, I don't want to tell you. <laughs> but I'd have to, and I'd tell him, and then he'd show up. It was an everyday thing. And uh, he'd ask me, so how are you doing? Fine. And that'd be it. <laughs> he wouldn't get much out of me. Uh, but he kept trying. And then finally, one day, he asked me, how are you doing? And I started to break down. And it finally, I, I, I said, I'm not doing good. And I said, do you want to talk about it? And I said, no, not here. Not here. Because I was in uniform at the time. And he said, okay, well, uh, meet me um, at the end of shift. And uh, we'll talk. So he actually drove home because his shift ends before ours do. Got into his personal car and came back to meet me. Um, in a parking lot off of Highway 18 just to talk. And I told him a little bit of what was going on. Not really descriptive. I did tell him I was struggling. Didn't blatantly say that I had been attempting suicide, but it was kind of alluded to. And I remember telling him, you know, if you try and take my gun from me, I mean, it's it's not going to end well for either one of us. Um, you, You will not take my badge and you will not take my gun. This is the only thing I have left. And he understood that. And he said, no, I get it. I get it said, but let's, let's figure out a plan for you. And he he listened to me. So he decided after that point, he would keep checking on me and encourage me as gently as he could to get some help if I needed to. But the important part was, is that he listened to me. And up until that point, I hadn't had anybody actually listen to me, um, even though I didn't tell him everything that was going on. So he continued to check on me. And I decided after that, that I was going to give it give the hotline another try. Except this time I called code Four Northwest. And this time I got connected actually, um, not with Nick. Um, uh, he stepped down. Uh, why can't I think of his name? Um, Steve, Steve. Okay. I got connected with Steve first and he referred me to this counselor that I'm still seeing to this day, Denise. I will name drop her because all first responders should see her whether, she wants more clients or not. <laughs> <laughs> Denise Coyle, just so you know. Um, connected me with her and I started seeing her. And then from there, Denise actually connected me with Nick. And I started texting Nick and we just started having conversations. I started seeing Denise. She tried to do some EMDR with me. Um, but all all she could get out of it was actually it was brain spotting, is what we did. Uh, but all we could get out of it was just I was tired. She couldn't get through anything other than I was tired, uh, which was kind of significant. And um, she kept pushing me that I need to completely unplug. I need to unplug and go away and reset. And so she was pushing me to go towards the first responder recovery center. And I was like, oh, hell no, I ain't going to the <laughs> loony bin. <band>. No, uh, uh-uh. <laughs> if if anyone thought I was losing my mind now, they're going to definitely think so if I go. So I was 100% resistant. And Nick actually ended up connecting me with another uh, former deputy that worked for my agency, Matt Tai. And he said, I think you need to talk to him. He went through a pretty similar experience in terms of what my therapist actually diagnosed as um, organizational trauma, which I wasn't even aware that was a thing. But on top of all the other eggs in the basket, apparently that was another one. Uh, So I started talking to Matt about experiences and he also started trying, you know, push me towards the recovery center and how it's great. And again, I was like, oh, hell no. Like, nope, 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 nope. But Nick and Matt and Denise all basically just kept an open door with me and just kept talking to me and having conversations, checking in with me. I was seeing Denise twice a week at the time. We were trying to do brain spotting. But it wasn't getting to the root of the issue. I was still, I was still receiving I.I.U.s. I was still losing my battle with depression because I was still kind of holding everything in, and the suicide attempts continued. I got my last. This was a seven-page one. My last I.I.U. dissertation, and this one, I actually had a uh, interview about. Uh, where I was told I took a call outside of my district, but it was in my district. So they were trying to give me a suspension for being a wall by taking a call in my district. Oh, <laughs> yeah. It it it. I actually in the interview I did ask. I said, is, "Is Ashton Kutcher here? Am I being punked? Like, what what is going on? This is <laughs> yeah. my district. What are you talking about?" Like, well, that's not your call sign. I said, "My call sign is that." <laughs> oh, but I got that final. Memo. It's basically once again, you're a piece of shit. Uh, You're a liar. You, you're never here at work, and you leave early. And now you're gonna get a suspension for it. And my sergeant gave it to the sergeant that's been watching me for a while. He gave it to me, and I remember I was standing in the report writing room reading this massive dissertation of, you know, defamation of character, and he stood in the doorway and just watched the whole time. I kind of I wanted him to go away. Cause I was in inside just completely losing my mind. Uh, I wanted him to leave, but he he just stayed there. He stayed blocking. He stayed blocking the door and he made a good roadblock. And unfortunately he ended up getting a tack, a SWAT call out. Um, he's the Sergeant for, for that unit. And he had to, he had to respond. So he had to leave, which meant I could get out. So he left And I escaped the report writing room and first thing I did is I got my patrol car and I drove east on Highway 18 to some Forest Service road and parked my car and I had no intention of coming back. I left everything in my car, got out, started walking up this Forest Service road. I was wearing, at the time, I had um, my Sergeant Jason Gooding uh, end of watch band. I took it off and I threw it somewhere in the woods to this day. I don't know where it's at. Threw it in the woods because um, I felt ashamed. I felt like I was ruining his memory. I wasn't living up to his expectations or his, where I had elevated him to. So I didn't want him there. I didn't want him present. So I just kept walking. I don't even know how long I walked, but I just kept going until I just felt tired. And standing there, I took my gun out and again, put it up to my head and I, I intended to pull the trigger. I, I don't know why I didn't. I just remember standing there with the gun inside of my head. And then I just had the first thought that came to my mind was I'm just tired. I'm just, I'm just so tired. And I didn't. So I put it back and I walked back down the road and drove my ass all the way home and then went to work the next day. Like nothing ever happened. So there was another incident similar to that, um, that was kind of climatic like that. Um, it was the only time, the only time at home, this was when I called safe call. Now I, uh, was drinking, I drank an entire fifth of fireball, which to this day, I will never drink fireball again. That's just some haunted memories. Um, but I drank it. And I went up into the bathroom of my bedroom, grabbed my duty weapon, and I stood in the bathroom staring at my reflection. And I, I remember, I remember this conversation and staring at myself with the gun to the side of my head saying, I hate you. You're a piece of shit. You deserve to die. I fucking hate you. And I did pull the trigger then. Nothing happened. I ended up passing out in the bathroom. When I woke up, I found my magazine had been released on the floor and there were some bullets that had just kind of made their way through the bedroom. So I don't know in my drunken entire fifth of fireball and a half hour was me releasing the mag just because I was gripping it so damn tight or what I ended up doing. But somehow I unloaded the damn thing. And because I remember when I when it didn't happen, when when I pulled the trigger, I heard the click. I racked the slide because I'm going malfunction, malfunction. Let's, let's clear this. And it clicked again. Or at least I don't actually I don't remember the second click. I just remember pulling it again and then passing out. But nothing ever happened. So I don't know how I did it. I must have done it. But it was moments like that where I 100% intended to be dead. And this persisted. It just, it continued on until October of 2019 responded to a call with some other deputies. It was a, a veteran who called the veterans crisis line saying he was going to kill himself. And I responded and we we're, we we're trying to get to the front door, no answer to the front door. And we checked the back, the, the fence, and we can see him hanging in the backyard from like a makeshift shelf. And so we force entry to the back, run back over there. I run up to the guy. Um, he actually wasn't too far off. The, he was just like a, a shelf that he was kind of dead, dead weight from. Mm-hmm. I picked him up and lifted him up. And the other deputies grabbed the noose off of his neck. He was still alive. And he started coming to the minute we got him off of the, off the noose, but he was still, you know, oxygen hadn't gone on all his limbs. So he's just like limp, you know, sitting there when I set him back down and he's yelling at me, you know, you know, take that gun out and kill me. Just kill me. Just shoot me. And I looked at him. I said, no, you're going to go to the hospital and you're going to get some help because you deserve to live. And then just suddenly, boom, I just, I just froze. And I remember looking at my other partners and I just was in this weird daze. I just, I just walked away. I just left. They The, you know, fire guys responded. They transported in the hospital. He was sent to get help. And I'm just standing by my patrol car going. Holy shit. Like, okay. Okay. I need, I need to go. So after that, I contacted my counselor, Denise, and said, okay, I'm ready. Look, what do I need to do? And within weeks, next thing I know, there was a bed available at Chateau Recovery in Utah. And I arrived early December. And that was just, it was so, so quick. Um, Actually, I think it was November when this call happened, but it was it was within a week, and I was there, and I instantly regretted it.
1: <laughs> so, regretted it because
0: uh, it was one of those. I walked in the doors, and I'm like, I don't want to be here. Mm-hmm. I don't want to be here. Why am I here? This is this is a place for loonies and and drug addicts. Why in the hell am I here? This is stupid. It was just all the things that I built up in my head. That mm-hmm. nope, nope. I don't want to be here. I don't want to be here. These people won't get me. I'm I'm not a crazy person. You know, I don't deserve it. I I shouldn't be here. I mean, people have far work. Why am I here? Just all that crap going in your head. And I'm going to get checked in. They take away all your stuff. Your phone gets taken away. Your wallet gets taken away. Um, They even took away lotion that I brought with me. So apparently hand lotion was a prohibited item. So I didn't get that back until I left. You know, hmm. but all of that was taken away and i remember checking in um into my room and my roommate at the time um she was an addict a recovering addict and i remember going why the hell am i here so i was pretty
1: angry and resistant <laughs> was this a facility that code 4 recommended or was- yes uh, okay
0: yep code so- 4 and um but they also addicts.
1: treat first responders.
0: Yep. They have a first responders program. Okay. And then they also have an addiction recovery. Okay. So it it's the same house that houses you both, mm-hmm. which at first I was like, we need to be separate. This is this is I don't know why I'm with everybody here, but actually I wouldn't have it any other way now that I've gone through the program.
1: Because of similarities that you found?
0: Amazing similarities. Okay. And then on top of that, listening to their struggles, how they got to where they are, every single one of them. When they would share their story or talk about how they ended up where they were, every single one of them said, I got pulled over or I got arrested. And if I hadn't been put in jail or if I hadn't been contacted by law enforcement, I wouldn't be alive today. Mm. And it was just one of those like, whoa, so what I do does make a difference. So not only did I reconnect with them as humans, I found my humanity again. Uh, But I also just kind it, it was a way of seeing like, wow, what I do does matter. I may never know about it, but these people here have all had some kind of interaction with law enforcement that forced them to get clean, that forced them to be in recovery. And that's giving them a second chance. And that's, that's why I wouldn't have it any other way, Being, having, sharing the house with both addicts and, and first responders. I was there with several other firefighters and a couple of cops and one EMT at the time. So we had our own little group. It was, it was great. I, I loved all the guys that were there, but, um, having the, having the attic side present as well, I think really helped ground me as to why I actually started in this profession.
1: That is really incredible.
0: Yeah. Um, I was there for a whole 30 days. We did a lot of EMDR. That was, that was part of, cause you get connect with a counselor that you see all the time. Um, And I know some people are anti-meds. I was definitely anti-meds, but I was not sleeping. So they actually get you connected with um, medication that is not addictive, which is another good reason to be in recovery with recovering addicts um, is because if you have that fear of being addicted to any kind of meds whatsoever, you're not going to get them from there. So they actually put me on um, some sleeping meds and uh, depression meds. And I think they made a huge difference, at least in leveling out my mind and helping me get back to my center. But so we got the EMDR counseling, and there's a lot of um, classes that you would go through, whether it's mindfulness. Um, we did yoga. I hated yoga.
1: I hated it. <laughs> you so know, I much. tried yoga too. Oh, I man. just can't bend like that.
0: No, I I just. <laughs> I just can't do it. And the, sitting there with your legs crossed and make a tree. And I'm like, this is bullshit. <laughs> um, but mindfulness and meditation, that really, really did something for me. And we did that, uh, physical fitness every day. Um, y'all had to go to the gym, whether you just walked around or you actually, you know, lifted weights. That was up to you. Yeah. Um, you had three square meals a day, uh, and you had a workbook that you had to work through. And I, Being the completest um, overachieving person I was, I actually completed it all in 30 days, which they were like, yeah, that's kind of unheard of. And I'm like, yep, you haven't (laughs) met me yet. Uh, So I don't want to say it changed and saved my life, but it definitely changed my life. I think reaching out and saying I need help is is what saved my life. If I hadn't called code for and been connected to Denise and then had that, that sounding board between, you know, Nick and uh, Matt. I, d- I don't know if I would have ever had that epiphany that I needed to go and get help. I know for a fact, I wouldn't be here today. My suicide attempts had gotten to the point of severity where I knew they were failing and I was pissed off about it. I guarantee you I would have found some way to make it work. I don't think I would have been sitting here today if not for all that culmination of events. If my sergeant hadn't watched me, if my sergeant hadn't shown that he actually cared and started pushing me down that path of I need to reach out to people and then going to Chateau, uh, I I know for a fact I wouldn't be here today.
1: You know, Nick Bauer Mm -hmm. is a tremendous human being. Yeah. Uh, I've gotten to know him since I started with Code 4. And the amount of work that that man does to mm. help people behind I the scenes, and uh, he's a true hero to yeah. me. He's he's incredible. He is. Yeah,
0: yeah. If it weren't for
1: I know there's too. I mean, I'm just. Oh yeah. You know, I I don't know the other. Matt. He was
0: my catalyst. So. Yeah,
1: yeah. It's just boy. If anybody's listening, you know, you know, Code Four is there. There's a lot of people that care. Uh, Nick is the head of it, and you know his energy, and and you know he's just trying to do the right thing for people. And he truly cares. And the people involved with Code 4 really do care. It's it's a very difficult thing to do to to make that call. Some people will say it's the hardest thing they've ever done. It was
0: the hardest thing I'd ever done.
1: Yeah. But, you know, when you're ready, there are people that are ready for you. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, so how are you feeling now?
0: So I got back from Chateau January, early January, and... I felt like a completely new person, a completely different person. I had it, it was strange being only thirty days or a month away from that really deep, dark hole that I had been digging, to suddenly standing on top of that hole, looking down and going, How in the hell did I get down there? Like how in the how, how was I stuck down there to begin with? It's just I, I I can't put myself back in that mindset. I don't remember how I got to that point. When I look at it, I feel like it's a completely different person. Like I'm out of body watching it. I was a completely different person, I guess. Uh, I went back to work. And it's actually uh, funny. I had run into Steve, one of the other deputies that was on your podcast.
1: Yeah, Yeah, Steve Johnson.
0: And I would run into him, and I had told him my story. I don't know how we got on the topic of it, but I had told him my story and I started telling other people my story and I started, I told my partner, uh, at work right away and he was gutted. He was like, how did I not know this was going on? And I remember telling him, um, I worked really hard to make sure nobody knew.
1: You were a good hider.
0: I was really, <laughs> he said, yeah, I mean, you were angry all the time and I didn't know how to, like, I, I was walking on eggshells around you, but I mean, I didn't know. I said, nobody did. One of the first people that I called and told was my sergeant, actually. He was on a skiing trip at the time, but I called him and he answered and I told him everything. He said to me that while he'd love to take all the credit, I said, you're the one that did the
1: work. Yeah, you know, and I was going to ask you about him. At first, you said you were really annoyed and how do you feel yeah. about him now?
0: Uh, if it wasn't for him, I don't think I would have been pushed down the path of getting help. Yeah and it was it was his persistence and the fact that he saw and just knew somehow i mean that that takes that's a quality you don't find in leaders
1: that's not, a tremendous not, quality
0: yeah you don't find that often in a lot of you know people that are in leadership positions but yeah. he just he just knew so to this day he's my most respected he's not my sergeant anymore mm-hmm. uh he's moved on to other greater things but
1: are you keeping his name private or would you like to Say a thank you right now to him
0: um I don't know if he wants yeah okay well, I, I don't I don't know if he wants to be yeah, known
1: maybe he doesn't so
0: um but if he is listening then I mean he I, knows who he is he knows who he is yeah yeah
1: good job man
0: <laughs> so um after that after I told uh, several people um my story. What my huge, my biggest fear when I was in Chateau was people, my work finding out was finding out that I was, I was at Chateau. I was in the loony bit, I was crazy or whatever. And then when I got out, it was like I didn't care. It was my story, and I had I had all the power over it because it was mine. Nobody could take it from me.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: So I had no fear whatsoever. And the reactions that I got from my partners, my my coworkers, friends, and when I told them. Was 100 not what I told myself was going to happen when I was in that dark place? I thought they would, you know, not want me to call on their calls, that they wouldn't want me as their partner, that they wouldn't want to work with me, etc., etc. You know, the catastrophizing. And instead, it was the complete opposite. I was vulnerable with them, and they gave me the greatest gift back in return, which was their vulnerability. I actually got several stories from other people that I told, and they said they were struggling, and I connected them with counselors or gave them advice on where to. Talk to or who to go. And I mean, I, 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 all I got was love in return and love and respect. And I didn't think I would get that back. I thought, you know, I was going to have this negative perception if I told people. But instead, I'm, I'm actually really proud of my story. I'm proud of where I've, I've come. Uh, When all that negative, when that hole was there, I was actually homeless for a period of time. So my finances was absolutely terrible. I was living out of my car and showering at my precinct. Um, I had basically blown up the relationships with all of my close friends at the time. I had blown up with my family because I had enough. And then the, the depression and the suicide attempts, all of that was just right, in, right at the, the peak of going to Chateau. And now I have healthy boundaries. I, I don't talk to my family still, um, but that's for me. Mm-hmm. I'm not ready for it. But I've, I've I've kept really healthy boundaries. I've kept up with all of the tools and trainings from the Chateau. Um, I still see a counselor weekly. If I need to see her more, I can. Mm-hmm. Um, I keep up with my meds because right now they seem to help me, and I don't see any reason to stop them. Plus, it helps me sleep, which is great.
1: Yeah, yeah.
0: <laughs> um, I am the healthiest I've ever been. And I, I I generally think I'm a better human being, uh, because of it. So I great outlook on life. I, I, I yeah. Yeah.
1: Well, <laughs> and I think um it's not easy to talk about things and you use that word vulnerability mm-hmm. that is huge. I know others who have said, you know, I thought I was all alone. Yeah. And then I found out there were others, you mm-hmm. know, and there's many others. And so that is, you're helping others by doing that. And that also gives you some strength. And I wanted to go back a little bit to when we were talking about the, mm-hmm. about wanting to sleep and the exhaustion. Yeah. If you're fighting depression and, and you're hiding it like you were doing and you're functioning, you're, you're making it to work. You're, mm-hmm. you're, Still involved with your family, like if you have kids and you're doing the best you can, the amount of energy that you're putting out, the strength that you have just to do that mm-hmm. and to keep going, and some people do it for years, it is so, it is so draining. Yeah, think of that strength as a strength, and that you can turn it around, and when you get back to balance, get back to that, get that equilibrium. Mm-hmm. You know you have a tremendous power within you to survive as long as you have yeah and then what can happen when once you get back up to that level ground you know there's a lot of potential
0: yep and that's that's what's exciting for me is is i i have since turned it around to wanting to help other officers deputies first responders that are in my position whether it's using my story or peer support i've attended my own on my own time and dime, um, trainings on officer wellness and first responder wellness. Uh, I've done my own SISM trainings for peer support, whether it's group or individual crisis intervention. I want to give back to help those that were in my spot because all it takes is someone that notices and that can open that door, and then hopefully you can help them step through it. Yeah, and that's what it was for me. Is I, I needed somebody. I mean, he was blocking the door for me, <laughs> but I needed somebody that, that opened the door for me and kind of gingerly was trying to guide me towards it. It was calling code four that um, really pushed it over the edge. Like I went through the door at that point, but you need somebody to open it. And wow. that's that's what I'm hoping to do.
1: Tremendous words. Yeah, <laughs> I really, I thank you for you know, being open to share your story like this, because I know it's going to help others. I hope so. Yes, it will. I hope so. Yeah. Thank you for spending the time to and coming and doing this.
0: Yeah. Anytime. I'm happy to be here. Happy to do it. If anyone else is going through stuff, I'm more than happy uh, to be uh, an ear, a
1: voice. How could people, would you want people to contact you through work or something? If uh, is that something you'd like to do? Sure. Absolutely. How would they get a hold of you?
0: Uh, if at work, so I'm with the King County Sheriff's Office, um, you can get a hold of me, either my personal phone or work email. I don't really answer my work phone, especially when I'm off duty. So I don't recommend calling that. Okay. Because <laughs> when I'm off, the phone goes off. Um, but for work, it's uh, my first name, Devin, D-E-V-O-N dot Edwards. And that's at kingcounty.gov. And uh, personal number, I'm totally fine giving that out too, if you're like me and you respond to text better than you do phone calls
1: <laughs> yeah well should um, they contact you on email first and sure go yeah. that route okay. yeah absolutely and then you can make your decisions yes. on that just in case because you it's know we true. actually have somebody in france listening to our podcast oh that's so, cool <laughs> you might, <laughs> might I, get an international phone call we're not sure who that is but <laughs> yeah yeah anyways i think that would be great Devin. thank you again Thank you to Robert Elliott, Erica Voyer, and Jim Gould for their voices and help with the podcast intro. The music heard is Wah Game Loop by Kevin McLeod. You can find it on the web at incompatech.filmmusic.io slash song slash 4602 dash wah dash game dash loop. And the license is at filmmusic.io slash standard dash license. All of the music information is posted in the episode description. Thanks for listening. Until next time, this is JR signing out.